right now on the Ringer Gambling Feed and all throughout the entire month of August, the East Coast Bias Boys are getting you ready to bet the NFL this season. We're going through each and every single division and revealing our favorite futures, predicting division winners, and even giving you some award winners. Do we think the Kansas City Chiefs will repeat or will they be dethroned? Tune in now to find out on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. David? Yes? Looks like we've got a new NBA Finals announcing crew. Oh, I saw this. This is this is big news. You remember that Jeff Van Gundy got laid off? <laughs> I seem to remember that, yeah. For reasons. Uh, Chad Finn tipped us off about ESPN's intentions a few weeks ago. And the New York Post's Andrew Marchand tells us today it's close to becoming a reality. Mark Jackson is going down to the second NBA team on ESPN. And the new number one team is going to be Mike Breen, Doc Rivers, and Doris Burke. Wow. What do you think about that? Uh, It sounds great. I mean, I I like all of those people. I mean, Doc Rivers at this point is just sort of a, you know, urban legend that our boss Bill Simmons uh, has passed down to us. Now, he was was good. He Uh, actually called the finals like in 2004 with Al Michaels. No, Which I know, some- and 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 reputation is great. I I have to admit, I don't remember it, uh, and it, it as as well as I should. Can I just say I'm the same way? You know me, right? You just give me a prompt, and I'll give you, you know, twenty seconds on Dick Enberg and Bob Trumpy mm-hmm. in the '90s on NBC. I don't know that I can give you a ton on Doc Rivers calling that single finals without Michaels. Yeah, yeah, same. But any, but but presumably, I mean, he's. He's good at his job. I yeah, take Bill's word for it, and um, and ESPN certainly seems to think so. Uh, are good at that job, uh, and uh, Doris Burke is wonderful. Uh, it, it, the the Mark Jackson demotion seems uh, interesting, just in so much as like, what was the point of retaining him if you're not going to keep him? But again, we don't really know how all these things work uh, behind the scenes. And that might be the last time we ever speak Mark Jackson's name on this podcast. Um, but yeah, that's big news. It's big news. They're not just looking to. It's it's a little bit more of a rebuild than a retool. And it's it's. Um, I think it's a little bit interesting to, to, to for them to be kind of calling the shot of the finals prior to the team working together at all. Um, but I like all the parties involved, and and definitely intrigued. One thing about Doris Burke, she's become such a big part of NBA television coverage mm-hmm. and has done such a great job that it's easy <laughs> paradoxically to skip over what a huge deal this is. 
you know, the networks have been talking about making the broadcast booth a place for something other than just dudes for a really long time, since at least the 80s and probably before that. This mm-hmm. is that's a that's a big, big deal and a big, big moment in broadcasting for her to be doing this on TV. I know she's done it on radio, but television is a big, big, big deal. Yeah, television is a is a light years jump from radio. Um, but it, I mean, for any number of reasons. But yeah, it, it's a huge deal. Uh, I think it's helped that Doris Burke is is uh, incredibly good at what she does. Um, it's also helped that ESPN and, and and other networks have gone out of their way to to you know open up the commentary booth tables, whatever else uh, across gender lines, and so it's it doesn't seem despite the fact that she's sort of um leading the charge it's not it doesn't seem like a one person show or you know or one person movement i guess um but i think the biggest thing is that you know it, it she she it didn't see it never seemed like that big of a deal past the announcement past the you know sputters of of whatever reaction that a negative reaction that it got on the front end i think there were much, many more people that were just excited about it when she first started calling national games and and um and you know, she's great. She earned her spot, you know, and we, and we, in, in this era, maybe it's because of the internet, maybe because we see so many different people have so many different voices comment on literally everything, but sports in general. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's a huge deal, but in a, in a way it's sort of wonderful. It doesn't feel like the sort of giant pivotal moment that it, that it is. There was one sentence in Marshan's piece that struck out to me, that stuck out to me, I should say, while Van Gundy was one of the best game analysts in sports, top ESPN executives were wary of his desire to coach again. <laughs> now, wait just one minute here. You're telling me that your way to fix this problem was to hire Doc Rivers, who in one <laughs> year's time will be the single hottest NBA coaching candidate out there. <laughs> And you're also telling me that Jeff Van Gundy calling 17 consecutive NBA finals was not enough loyalty for you. (laughs) Well, at least with Doc, you know what you're getting, right? There's no confusion there. No, I mean, listen, this is obviously a this is obviously a post rationalization. You know, some people are making up making excuses. Um they, I don't know if they didn't expect the back, the, the backlash that came with Van Gundy getting let go. Um, but yeah, this is, I mean, that's just, that just is beyond belief. We talked about the fact that, you know, Van Gundy, when he would tweak the refs and therefore tweak the NBA, that, you know, it creates this idea of, wait a second, was the NBA unhappy to have Jeff Van Gundy calling such high profile games? Mm-hmm. And it's very tough to connect those dots because if calls like that are ever made, they're made at the very, very top levels. And they're if they are made, they're made very much in secret. And you can always point to something else and say, well, you know, look, he had a huge salary. That's why we got rid of him. We're going in a yeah. different direction, whatever it is. But when you put stuff like that out there, <laughs> that what we were worried about is Jeff Van Gundy leaving us in the lurch after 17 years of service yeah, to take a coaching job you're kind of telling us, Hey, there's something else here. There's yep. something else you might want to look into mm-hmm. because that is insane. Worried about Jeff Van Gundy taking another coaching job. Okay. 
No, I mean, there's, it, it, it's not true. It's just not true. I can make fun <laughs> of it all day. It's, it, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, so maybe there is something there. Some team should just give Jeff Van Gundy, if they're not going to hire him as a coach, they should hire him as a, as a PR director. Just have that, him be the guy that goes out and gives all the press conferences on behalf of the team. Um, that would be fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's it just incredibly bizarre. I mean, it's so weird. I mean, it, the perception that, that anybody, that any powerful person, that any po powerful organization is so thin-skinned is so much more damning than what anybody could say about them on a basketball broadcast. You know, it's not like... Jeff Van Gundy's out here saying, like, you know, David Stern did some big things for the league, but a lot of his moves were incredibly problematic, and let's talk about why. I, you know, he wasn't doing anything to, that was just, like, you know, shocking in any sort of way. He was criticizing referees. Like, that's what we all do at home. That's part of why he was so successful. Um, yeah, just, just a really bizarre, really bizarre choice to double down on how... Uh, or not double down, to, like you said, to open the door to the conspiracy theories that now we all are going to 100% believe. Isn't that when we get mad at announcers, when we see something on television and they just don't say it? Mm -hmm. And if there was a bad call, Jeff Van Gundy would say it. Yep. He would just say it. That was a good thing, or so I thought. Coming up on today's pod, it's an old-fashioned, we demand a correction, or several corrections, Media face-off, Variety versus Puck and the Atlantic. Plus, Twitter has rebranded as X, but wait, all the journalists are still here. And a bunch of quick items for you, including Broncos coach Sean Payton, Ron, I love the corporate media, DeSantis, and anti-AI spokesman or AI skeptic James Patterson. All that and much more on the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. media consumers brian curtis david shoemaker and producer erica cervantes here there was a big story last tuesday david that pit pitted variety versus our paywalled pals the atlantic and puck on tuesday variety published a story by tatiana siegel about the drama at cnn the defenestration that wound up <laughs> costing chris licked his job now Part of that story's reporting, perhaps the main part, had Jeff Zucker, former head of CNN, looking for money so he could buy his old network. Many of those allegations were very strenuously denied by Zucker's camp. But Variety also went after two journalists who published stories about CNN and Chris Licht. Tim Alberta, author of the big piece in The Atlantic about mm -hmm. Chris Licht, and Dylan Byers, who wrote many, many pieces about Licht and CNN in Puck. Those also, it turns out, got strenuous pushback from the parties involved. So I thought we'd go through them one by one here. First of all, I would like to say that as somebody who hosts a media podcast, perhaps this isn't surprising, I'm always happy to listen to an alternative story. <laughs> yes. Even when you have a so-called definitive story like the one Tim Alberta delivered. Oh, absolutely. Maybe someone thinks Chris Licht was good at his job, or maybe someone thinks he really wasn't good at his job, but that Alberta and Byers portrayed him in a way that was somehow unjust, right? We're, 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 our ears are open. Our eyes are Absolutely. open. But if you're going to go after another journalist, I think you've probably got to bring better ammo than what Variety brought here. Here's the case against the Atlantic's Tim Alberta. Variety says he only had four meetings 
with Chris Licht to report this profile. Alberta says, nope, he met with Chris Licht on seven different days while reporting the story. Sidebar for you, David, if it had only been four meetings, doesn't that seem like a lot for a magazine feature about a famous person? It does. The only thing that I can think is that the reception of it was that he had this incredible inside, inside access. And then maybe they were trying to defang that perception or something. But again, it doesn't, it's, yeah, four is, four is plenty. Seven is, you know, and to get that wrong is just sort of wild. Do people know that getting to two meetings with a famous person, even for a long profile these days, is something of a get? Oh, gosh, yes. (laughs) Much less four. Or do people know that? No, I mean, I don't, I don't know if they know that. I mean, I think that most people would assume that it's, Kind of either one, maybe it's the assumption is that it's either one meeting or it's like you're embedded for a month. But I, but yeah, I mean, four meetings is a lot, no matter how you look at it. There was a line that really stuck out in Alberta's piece. He was with Licht while Licht was working out, which is itself a very, very funny thing. And Licht said mid-workout, Zucker couldn't do this shit. <laughs> uh, so to, Variety has sources saying that Alberta... The reporter. You're going to say the variety has sources saying Zucker could have done that shit or no? <laughs> now that would have been a correction. Sources say that Alberta said the line, or let me take that again. I'm sorry, Erica, one more time. Sources tell Variety that Alberta, the reporter, actually was the one that said the line and then Licked merely repeated it. <laughs> Alberta comes back on Twitter and says, nope, he grunted the remark directly to me. That's so weird. It's such a weird thing. I mean, it, it would be so weird for a reporter to be the one to suggest a line like that. Yeah. Zucker couldn't do this shit. <laughs> and one more sidebar for you. Is a repeated line out of bounds? Whew. I mean, it's a great question. I think if you're feeding somebody the catchphrase or, you know, the 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 just big line of the piece, that's pro- that's problematic. But it's not out of bounds. You should probably say that you said it first. If we're doing the mandatory uh, wrestling analogy here, if you were interviewing uh, Ron Simmons about his days in WWF and you mentioned, let's say, a gimmick that seems a little bit weird in retrospect and you and you say, you know, in retrospect, that seems kind of weird. Ron Simmons turns to you and says, in retrospect, it seems kind of weird. You can <laughs> quote him saying that, right? Like he has, you sure can. He has signed off. And I agree with you. If it had been an absolutely killer line that you had delivered and he had then repeated, maybe you'd think twice about it and admit your own, you know, complicity in in delivering it to him. Especially, though, in the era of podcast interviews. Who amongst us is not, you know, you, sometimes you ask the same question two or three times to get a better answer, right? Mm-hmm. And and if they... uh if, if, you know, they hit on the last one and maybe if they borrow some of the words from your previous questions along the way, I don't think any that very many reporters are above using that. John Oliver once had this huge reel of 60 minutes correspondence feeding lines like that. Oh, to yeah, that was great. <laughs> That's really funny. This was a Variety's case against Dylan Byers uh, that he played down Jeff Zucker's own complicity in CNN's decline, that Puck, Byers' employer, was trying to get Zucker to invest in it. Puck Journal, which would have then benefited Puck journalists like Dylan Byers. Byers and Puck editor John Kelly came back and said Dylan Byers did not know about any courting of Jeff Zucker to invest in Puck, so he couldn't have disclosed something he didn't know. Uh, Variety also said that Puck and Zucker 
share a crisis communications firm. Kelly says that didn't result in any back channeling. Hmm. So minus a few curly cues here and there, that's about it. That's a, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I just. That's the controversy. You know, I just, again, I feel like questioning the results of the portrayal, you know, uh, looking at a piece critically and saying, does this really prove X? Does this really prove Y? Whatever. Hey, you know, that's, that's what media podcasts are for. That's what Twitter's for. That's what DMs are for. But when you go at somebody's reporting in a very specific way like that, it just feels like I'm really left wanting. Well, and to be carrying water for Chris Licht, too, is just a weird place to be. You know, I mean, not that the guy's bad and, and, and doesn't deserve, that does, you know, it doesn't, doesn't deserve defense if something inaccurate or, or offensive is said about him. But Or if there's just an interesting case to be made on his behalf, like I said before, yeah, I'd, hear, seems, I'd listen to it. It seems weird to be kind of it's it feels like you're you're like reading from a memo that the Chris Lick PR department has put out right which is not anywhere anybody wants to be two more funny notes uh that came out of this whole controversy one was a statement from Jeff Zucker's spokesperson that is <laughs> Crisis Comms Pro Risa Heller who careful listeners of this podcast will know about the statement goes like this David there used to be a time when Variety held its content and its reporters to the high standard of truth and facts in journalism. <laughs> Don't you love the statement that praises the previous version of the publication? Yeah, this is a take- Saturday, the Saturday Night Live isn't all that it used to be of, uh, of media indictment, sort of, you know. <laughs> <laughs> just tell me, whenever somebody issues one of those, I would just, just tell me, what was your favorite thing about the old Variety? <laughs> What was the what was the careful vetting and fact checking you most appreciated at Old Variety? This whole idea of just conjuring up this idea that Army Archer is spinning in his grave. <laughs> okay. Even if they uh, had said that, then that would have been uh, I think that would have been a little bit more compelling. Speaking of statements, uh, this one came from Puck editor John Kelly in defense of Dylan Byers. His statement began this way: Dylan Byers single-handedly elevated the CNN story into the popular culture. Dot dot dot. Um, that might be true. I mean, it's certainly, yeah, I mean, the, the, into the popular culture. uh, So summer 2023, you're thinking Barbenheimer and Puck's reporting on CNN. That's what you're going to take away. No, no, you're, you're probably right. I just think we can say reporting was excellent. Reporting was great. Was just, just everybody just take a breath here. Yeah. John Kelly did say. When you're the defenestrator, people try to defenestrate you. Now, that's a good line. And thank you for continuing to use our favorite verb when it comes to media shakeups. Yes, it's the best. Defenestrate. Uh, Elsewhere in the news, David, Elon Musk has rebranded Twitter as X. Should we say he rebranded X as from Twitter to X since X is now what it's called? And we. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yes. What you said. No. Oh, man. What a... I mean, at some point, you want to feel a little bit sorry for the dude that he can't rebrand his company without it being a total clusterfuck. Uh, And, you know, you'd think at least get the 
but come on, at least get the at least get the visuals right. You know, make sure you got the make sure you got the right paperwork before you take the sign off your building and replace <laughs> it with a new one. But that just seems <laughs> to be the whole way this stuff works. Putting up the new sign was such a funny part of the rebrand. Mm-hmm. In a world of social media, in a world of of you know limited character count communication, it's rare that a public figure comes out and gives us a metaphor so beautiful and stark. So I appreciate that um, from from Elon Musk. But uh, but yeah, I mean it, it's just it's it's just ridiculous. I mean it's like it, it as the site is like seems to be falling apart. Like a chunk falls into the. A chunk of the iceberg falls into the freezing water every week. Um, and what we're worried about is rebranding the site as X, which, you know, was a thing that he wanted to do a decade ago with his old website. It's just so, it's, it just, you know, it's, it's, this is why you need good people around you. So you can just be like, yeah, there's this perception about me that I'm petty. Is there any part of this move that's going to look petty? And if someone's like, yes, you know, whatever, it, it might, then you take a pause. Yeah. <laughs> Seems to be no pausing here. No pausing at all. No. No. The, speaking of no pausing, how about him, Elon, getting into the uh, Bronny James discourse? Oh, God, I didn't even see it. What did he say? With a vaccine tweet? There's no There's no need to see it. But what I want to know from you is the journalists now have all left Twitter, right? <laughs> I think we're all still there. Because I heard everybody was going to Blue Sky. I heard everybody was going to Mastodon. I heard everybody was going to Threads. I saw them posting links to their new profiles. Oh, they'll do that. Hit me up on threads. And then they all left, right? This is it. This is the final straw. They're gone. Uh, I think we're all still there. We're still there. Everybody's still posting their work on Twitter after all that. Yep. That's just so funny how that happened. (laughs) What, What month are we in of people threatening to leave Twitter? I mean, Twitter serves a lot of functions, but at the end of the day, it's, I don't know, town hall. I think it's a word that Elon Musk likes to use, but it's yeah, it's still the hangout, you know? I know. It's, it's still the place you go to find out that Paul Rubens passed away, rest in peace, you know? I mean, it's still, it's, you still got to do the, and that he was 70, you know? But uh, I guess that's incidental. Um, it's hard It's hard to replace Twitter, at, you know, in its most core function, which is just soaking in. You know, you can't have a piece of that. You can't have 10% of Twitter and get nearly the same results. And I mean, that's why Elon Musk paid a bunch of money for it. You know, what's also hard to replace for journalists, all those followers that they earned on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. That they spent years and years trying to accrue. Mm -hmm. They had two goals, right? Every journalist in our generation, do great work, get a bunch of Twitter followers. Yeah. And slicing off half of a decade's worth of work turns out to be harder than perhaps some expected. Anyway. Yes. Also, apparently they're writing checks to, to, to do the high-profile checkmark accounts now for engagement. So that'll be, that'll be an interesting path forward if they actually stick that out. Coming up, David, I want to tell you about Sean Payton, who suddenly got interesting. But first, let's do the uh, overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. They're, they're still here. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always, always gratefully received. Uh, runner up this week is jokes based on Ken's line from the Barbie movie. My job, it's just beach. <laughs> For example, my job is email based off the Barbie Twitter meme. Everyone suggested. 
<laughs> Thanks to Chad Orzel, Michael L. Avery, and Michael P. Casey for that one. I have not seen the Barbie movie. Me either. Always fun to read jokes about something you sort of understand. Uh, but this week's winner, David, any jokes about Twitter X, including that big glowing sign on Twitter HQ in San Francisco? For instance, X marks the spot where Twitter went to die. <laughs> if you also haven't left Twitter and you're still here making jokes, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. All right, in the notebook dump, I want to talk to you about Sean Payton. Yes. He's a former Fox broadcaster turned Denver Broncos coach. Former he Fox had, broadcaster feels like you're barking up the wrong tree here. Or, I don't know. That's, that's the right turn of phrase. Uh, but yes. We're setting Fox up Sports. the next beat in the segment, David. Here we go. <laughs> just, 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 here we go. Just roll with this. John Payton gave a very interesting interview. Interesting is one word, I guess, for it. To Jarrett Bell of USA Today. He ripped Nathaniel Hackett, the Broncos coach he's replacing. Kind of ripped the Jets for being on hard knocks this summer. Mm -hmm. This was uh, Sean Payton's attempt to crawl back, to row back some of those remarks. Made the papers. Uh, I was just wondering why, why you... Yeah, listen, I had, I had one of those moments where I still had my Fox hat on and, and not my coaching hat on. Now, is it just me or did Sean Payton never actually say anything that interesting when he was employed by Fox? Yeah. Where was that? <laughs> I mean, he was fine, but he was never really overly combative. You know, I mean, he didn't. That's sort of the hope of when you hire someone, a, a recently retired player or recently uh, a jobless coach, is that they're going to get on TV and just be like, let me tell you something about this asshole. <laughs> you know, when somebody comes on TV, they very rarely do. As far as I can recall, Sean Payton didn't do anything even in that stretch. <clears throat> Excuse me. As far as I can recall, Sean Payton didn't do anything anywhere in that stratosphere. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's 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 interesting now. Maybe he should have. Maybe he was wearing a different hat when he was working for Fox, and he just found his Fox hat when he was moving offices or something. <laughs> he's like, I should have been wearing this all along when I was on television yeah. every week. It was amazing. Awful announcing. Us did a funny thing where they rounded up all the football people who were assuring us that Sean Payton doesn't do anything by accident. <laughs> Sean Payton is very deliberate with everything he does. One thing about Sean Payton, everything is intentional, not accidental. Yeah, you think he's just like, didn't understand that ripping his predecessor 
then basically <laughs> the entire Broncos organization before he showed up would would create a ripple. Yeah, I, I'm thinking I think it was intentional. Kind of guessing. Ron DeSantis, David, is talking to uh, everybody. It's not just Jake Tapper on CNN. And it has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that a new New York Times Siena poll just came out that has DeSantis trailing Trump nationally 54 to 17. Mm-hmm. According to Alex Thompson of Axios, DeSantis doing did CBS and ABC last week. He is going to be on Brett Baer's show on Fox. I think Brett Baer was doing the Twitter thing of, do you have any questions for Ron DeSantis? Oh, great. Which is always my favorite bit from a media person. Any questions that I should ask <laughs> that me, the interviewer, should ask this guest? I always enjoy that one. That's my, I have a podcast interview coming up in two minutes. Please help. <laughs> it's one thing to do it with the overworked Twitter joke. It's another thing to uh, crowdsource your interviews, folks. Uh, by the way, speaking of which, Chris Christie went on Pod Save America. Yeah. It's part of his media tour. I say all this because Max Tanney had a really interesting piece in Semaphore about what he calls the fragmentation election. So we know the media has been fragmenting for some time. Mm -hmm. But now we're faced with a situation where candidates are going on very, very, very non-traditional media platforms to get their message out. Yeah. Plus, you have a great data point for somebody writing a piece like this, which is that Donald Trump, as of right now, is not participating in next month's Republican debate. Yeah. He's opting out of the one mass media thing we were supposed to get with all the Republican candidates in the same place. Mm -hmm. But I want you to listen to some of these examples that Tanny uh, rounds up here. Uh, Ron DeSantis appeared in the last two weeks alone on podcast hosted by Clay Travis and comedian Russell Brand. <laughs> okay. Okay. Also went on with uh, Megan Kelly. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, Tanny Wright, spends much of his time appearing across faith-based Christian podcasts, radio and television, such as the Christian Broadcast Network and the Trinity Broadcast Network. Okay. Vivek Ramaswamy is the one person who is basically doing everything. Sure. Then there's Joe Biden. Biden is set to appear tomorrow on a podcast with Jay Shetty the iHeart radio host who produces a weekly show on mindfulness and mental health. Wow. And for your kicker, Donald Trump is still in talks to sit down for an interview with Mike Tyson, which was scrapped due to a scheduling conflict earlier this month. <laughs> so what do you attribute uh, this to? Um, well, I mean, a couple of these things are, there's, there's, there's two things that you're talking about. One is, trying to hit these niche markets one after the other. And and some of them are just kind of bigger ideas within the campaign. Um, where to begin? Chris Christie is obviously just doing the, the uh, you know, middle of the road, verging on liberal tour. He did a giant interview on, on, uh, on Morning Joe to like launch his campaign various liberal members of my family may or may not have been swayed um, by his uh, sense of urgency and, you know, New Jersey charisma. Uh, that's going to be his corner, you know? I mean, in, he's a known quantity. He's got a little bit of a different road, but he's also got a little bit more of, you know, uh, legitimacy if if the uh, something happens to Trump or whatever else. 
Um, I think in, in, you know, in terms of going on mindfulness podcasts or, you know, going on and even going like the Joe Rogan show, which is a billion people listening and whatever else, it's a, it's, it's a smart way to market yourself in this day and age. Um, you know, people that are people that are listening are by and large people who've opted in to that show. And it's almost like retail politics. It's like, oh, look, Joe Biden showed up at my local corn dog shop. You know, it's like he's just like me, and that makes me feel good. Um, the, the Ron DeSantis thing is totally, I mean, is is its own bird. I mean, Ron DeSantis is a is his campaign's a mess. All of his all of their big ideas didn't it didn't pan out. When people are reporting on your campaign restructuring instead of actually reporting on your campaign, you you're already losing. I mean, and I think that we all pointed at this from the start. Not that we had any sort of crystal ball, but. Uh, this is still a Trump versus not Trump election. And, you know, DeSantis has not been willing to go all in on being the anti-Trump because he, first of all, agrees with Trump on a lot of things and second of all, uh, needs his voters. Um, but DeSantis was at his most vital, at his most uh, interesting and probably polling at the highest when he and Trump were, were you know, slap boxing each other. And as soon as Trump realized he should just stop doing that. And DeSantis just fades into oblivion. I mean, not oblivion. He's still number two in the Republican polls that came out today, but still, he's, he's a distant second. It's oblivion. I'd, I'd really like your point about the uh, corndog stand because I think when you look at it, the names are different and it feels weird that Biden is going on an iHeart podcast. But I'm not so sure this is different from the tried and true presidential media tour that took them to good morning iowa mm -hmm. and good morning new hampshire and all those local stations well and not at all different from obama going on between two ferns i mean that was for obamacare but you know i mean he, he knew how to micro micro target his audience too oh totally he, he completely understood it and that's that's the best way to, to to show that this has been happening for quite a while but i think as a presidential candidate there's some big interviews that you probably do and you do with some trepidation sometimes, especially if you actually are in the lead because there's something to lose. Yeah. Um, going in front of the big media. And I, by the way, encourage all presidential candidates to line up and do those interviews, especially with the best interviewers. But we also know that they go and do interviews with other people and people that mm -hmm. appeal to viewers in different ways. And again, you know, when you go on with the back in the day with the local television anchor, who's very, very familiar to viewers in cities, in important primary states or caucus states like that's that to me is not all that different. The fragmentation point is interesting. But, you know, I think if you look at where we are right now. You know, Ron DeSantis gave an interview to Jake Tapper on CNN. Mm -hmm. has given interviews to the networks. He has ultimately dropped the whole corporate media thing and said, okay, I'm just giving interviews like a regular candidate. Yeah. All the other Republicans are lining up to talk to mainstream people mm -hmm. because they just need attention at this point. There's nowhere to go but up. Biden is kind of a mystery. <laughs> Trump, right? It may turn out that Biden and Trump are the two that are not giving major network interviews. But again, Trump was also on a CNN town hall. So I do agree it's different. I do agree it's a different world, but I do think the new world resembles the old world in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah, they're strikingly similar.
the the most interesting thing is what you mentioned that if the two leading candidates just don't do much. I mean, Trump had to do something. Trump will, will continue to do occasional things just to remind us that he is a candidate, that he's at least as much a candidate as he is a you know uh, courtroom figure. Um, <laughs> but uh, who knows what Biden's going to do? Biden may do little or nothing at all. I mean, which is not smart. I mean, I think he'll probably do more as the campaign gets closer. I mean, as the election gets closer. Um, because there will be a lot of questions that just like can only be answered by by his like literal presence somewhere uh, and like real time response to questions or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, these other candidates have opportunities to 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 take up the oxygen, you know, to fill in that void by by uh, by by being on these big programs and and they need that traditional attention. You know, they need people reminding. I mean, they 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 should be doing the you know, uh, huge listenership podcasts and, and, you know, micro targeted stuff, uh, you know, that have, that have concerted fan bases, but they also have to be doing, I mean, it's more important to them to be doing mainstream media and to sort of be labeled. Listen, the, the more times that their average voter can hear Ron DeSantis be referred to as number two in the polls behind Donald Trump, the better it is for him. I mean, oh, it'd, be yeah. better if, it'd be better if they would say he was beat, he beat Donald Trump in Iowa or something like that. But, you know, for right now, that's really beneficial to him because we talk about him all the time. But does the real, true, average voter really have a concept of who he is? Yeah, no, prob probably not. And that's actually probably good for Ron DeSantis, despite the despite the wrong-headed place where his campaign started. I would get ID as the number two behind Trump as many times as I could before Tim Scott overtakes me in the polls in Iowa. <laughs> it seems like that's happening sometime soon. Uh, we talked about AI on the show last week, David. Is it going to make us journalists more efficient or just make journalism so efficient that the people who run it no longer need us? There was a big AI piece in the Wall Street Journal. And James Patterson, yes, the crime novelist, mm -hmm. mystery novelist, not totally sure how to categorize James Patterson, was quoted uh, the journal says Patterson said he found the idea that all of his novels, more than 200 of them, were likely ingested without his permission to train generative AI software to do his job, quote, frightening. This will not end well for creatives, he said in an interview. Mm -hmm. Now, us writers will take all the allies <laughs> we can get. Okay. But how but do we feel about James Patterson being with us in the case for... You know, writers should be their own unique thing in the world. James Patterson, who's writing novel after novel after novel, often they, with co-authors. Are we are we okay with that? I just want to make sure we're on the same page here before I. James proceed. Patterson is a is a transformative figure. You know, in the world of publishing, there was a time when his publisher told him, "We only, you know, we're only going to publish one book a year. Readers will not accept more than that." And he said, "No." And he kept putting out more and more and with co-authors, books in different genres, children, young adult books, all that kind of stuff. Um, now, I mean, he probably at his peak published, what do you, what do you think the most was? Eight books in a year? You think he outdid eight? Uh, but he's publishing I lost track, a lot. 200, I mean, over what, 50 years, 40 yeah, years? We very, very, he's, he publishes a lot of books. Um, also, I watched Along Came a Spider the other day. Have you ever seen this movie? <laughs> No. I feel like I, I definitely saw it before. Parts of it were interesting to me, but it's been it's been a long time 
this was just the dumbest thing, the dumbest story I have ever read. It was based on an Alex Cross novel. And I, I was just watching it by about the halfway point. I was like, no, this is what it's really about. It was just the dumbest. It was so dumb. Anyway, <laughs> I, I was like, wow, this I, I hope this must be James Patterson, right? He's sold a billion novels. They didn't want to change anything. And that's why it's so dumb. But maybe it's not. Maybe it was the filmmakers. And then I just lost all interest in looking up and finding out because, man, it was dumb. Anyway, um, so you're saying we have mixed feelings about James Patterson joining us on the AI picket line. No, James Patterson's fine. People read James Patterson. If you're reading okay. a book, it's a good thing. You know, okay. I mean, we, we, we've, we both read many, many books that people would look down their nose at, whatever. You know, it's like when people, it's during the, 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 the Harry Potter furor of a decade ago when everyone's just like, oh, my kid finishes the Harry Potter books and then just starts back over in the Harry Potter books. It's like, you know, it's okay. They're reading books. You know, we don't, you don't need to force another book into their hands that they're not going to read. Just let them, let them read words. That's okay. Okay. That seems like another discussion, by the way, the Harry Potter books, but I'm going to move on. <laughs> well, I know you're feeling about witchcraft, the, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> new feature here at the Press Box, David. It's called Not About the Media. Oh. Because I think you and I deserve a weekly feature where we talk about something that's a little bit out of our wheelhouse. Yes. Why should all the other Ringer podcasters have all the fun? I'm going to get this feature started <laughs> by telling you that I took my son, who is 10, to see Mission Impossible 7 the other day. Nice. Fantastic time at the theater. I completely endorse Chris and Andy's review over on The Watch, where they basically said this movie is incredibly fun, even if there are moments where you will not understand who key characters are or indeed why certain <laughs> things are happening. <laughs> Great. Usually that bothers me. It was fantastic. Had a wonderful time. So did Owen. Uh, but the movie is too long. I would like to report. It oh, is great. just too long. And all movies are too long. Uh huh. Now, before I get into sounding like angry old man here in this new feature, I, this is not the way <laughs> I want to inaugurate things. Like our what old I friend Josh Malden is actually the, the appropriate point of view here. <laughs> it was your friend too, by the way. But yes, he yeah. told us that all movies were too long when we were in high school. Now, all movies are actually too long. By the way, this is 163 minutes, Mission Impossible. Whew. I want to ask you, what, it was, what is the original too long movie of this era? Of what this got us era? headed down this path? Yeah, because, I mean, you're not going to say like Cleopatra or something or Dances with Wolves. That's not where this came from. My theory as we were walking out of the theater the other day was that the Lord of the Rings director's cuts are what huh. put us down the path to two long movies. Remember Lord of the Rings came out? It was great, but it was also like three hours. Yeah, it was. They and then the director's really cut added like another hour. Yeah. And you're like, this isn't bad. This is not a bad movie. In fact, this is a really excellent movie in some cases. But why is this? Why would this be four hours? Now? When did the director's cuts come out? Did they come out simultaneously with the releases of the, for the, of the other movies, or was that a later I say release? Early two thousands. I felt I had my hands on them. I remember when I moved to New York for the first time. I was staying in like basically a, 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 a hostel in in Hell's Kitchen, um, and didn't know anybody. I would would walk back from work every day, and and would often go to the movies. And all of the, I think the third Lord of the Rings movie must have been out because they were all back in the theater. But I think whether or not those are the director's cuts, that they're, they're long movies and they and they're they're all playing at the same time, right? Because people want to go back. And I think having three different three movies that are all three hours in the theater right next to each other does kind of change your your concept of 
of uh, how long a movie can be. And it was and it was great. You know, you know, you get to go at that point. It seemed like a luxury. Sometimes you'd go to a big movie and it would be like 88 minutes long, you know, and you would just be like, I didn't even finish my popcorn. Yeah, you, it's it's not it felt good at first. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of them are long now. And now, I mean, I don't know, I mean, where it came, but I, but I do remember people sort of being, there was a, okay, there was a feeling with the Lord of the Rings movies that they sort of earned it, the, the, the type of movies that they were, the style of movies that they were, it felt sort of appropriate, they were covering a lot of literary territory, um, when the, uh, the the Hobbit movies came out, that was different. They were each covering like 15 pages of the novel and they were somehow even longer. <laughs> oh but but the, but they did seem like they earned it. I think it was, the, to me, I always, I think of the MCU movies, the Marvel movies, when it would just be like, uh, just, you know, two and a half hours for Captain America Civil War or like whatever. Like, of course, by the time Endgame came out, they were like three hours each. I think that that... That was much later, but it's also much more trivial, you know, kind of much more. And I say this as a diehard comic book fan, much more disposable in the grand scheme of things. And that it was yep. just as long as they need to be, as long you know, whatever. That sort of I think changed the calculus. That, but and and you know, I'm sure that there's a lot of people. I mean, Tom Cruise is a thoughtful person about getting people back in movie theaters and stuff. I'm sure. There's some people that believe that if you're going to go pay $15 or whatever, $20 for a movie ticket, more bang for your buck is a good thing. Yeah. I don't know. I, no, I, I, I agree with all that. I almost, I, the reason I point to Lord of the Rings is because it's a, it makes sense because it's a good movie. It's not a bad movie. It's a very successful movie, but it also felt like at least by the third one, we weren't making decisions anymore. Like we were just like, let's just leave it. If the movie has like five endings, yeah, okay, yeah. let's have five endings. And then when you go to the director's cut on then on DVDs and Blu-rays, it's like, you know what? Here's another forty-five minutes. Of yeah. this movie. So we didn't make any decisions at all about yeah. length. I don't know if somebody can if somebody can convince me it's something before that or something after that. I I'm would like to hear. I'm sure there is something, but I mean. That those were those. I mean, that was part of the that was part of the narrative of them at the time. Their length, you know. I mean, that was part of what what people talked about. So yeah, I mean, that was, they were huge. Next week on Not About Media, we find the original Substack post that was too long. <laughs> discussed what happened from there. Now it's time for David Shoemaker guesses the strained pun headline. Yeah. Last Monday's headline about a golf champion's thirst for hunting was, "I shoot to thrill." Today's headline, David, comes from me. It's from the New York Post, which I'm still reading here on the East Coast. The New York Mets traded pitcher Max Scherzer to your Texas Rangers on Saturday. <laughs> Thank you for calling them my Texas Rangers. So the Post is saying goodbye to Max Scherzer, who is a three-time Cy Young winner. What was the New York Post's strained pun headline? Max, uh, three-time Cy Young winner. Yes, sir. Three good uh saying farewell. Goodbye. Goodbye to the Cy Young winner. Um adios three size go. Uh <laughs> <laughs> no, we're gonna start uh, with Cy here. Cy oh Cy of um Cy Cy like S I G H Cy. No, see why? Oh, I thought I thought that was the pun. Um, sigh, sigh, oh, 
Nar. Remember, this is the New York Post. Just want to make oh, Sayonara. Sayonara. Sayonara is the New York Post headline. Uh, we're also alerted that said that uh, there was a headline that said Tex Max. Tex Max. For Max. Wait, I don't. Tex Max. Went, oh, Tex Max. Sorry. Right. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm slow on that one. Yeah. Now, you've been gone from Texas too long, my friend. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production Magic by Erica Cervantes. I'm back later this week. And then Shoemaker and I reconvene for more lukewarm takes about the media and movies next week. See you then, David. See you later, Brian.